This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. And then there were five GOP candidates on the debate stage, that is. The Republican presidential hopefuls took the debate stage last night in Miami to voice their support of Israel. Hamas said death to Israel and death to America. They hate and would kill you too. Throw jabs at opponents. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters crapping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the scum. easy answer is... Act- and criticize the GOP frontrunner. And Donald Trump's a lot different guy than he was in 2016. He owes it to you to be on this stage and explain why he should get another chance. So what was debated? After the break, we recap the night and discuss what the candidates said about issues like abortion, the economy, and foreign policy. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into, so stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Here to help us break down the debate is Alex Thompson. He's the national political correspondent at Axios. Alex, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Also with us is Rena Shaw, a political commentator and strategist. Good to have you, Rena. Hi. And Gabe Fleischer, the founder and editor-in-chief of the Wake Up to Politics newsletter and a senior at Georgetown University. Hey, Gabe. Hey, thanks for having me. So there were only five GOP candidates on the stage last night for the event. It was hosted by the RNC in partnership with the Republican Jewish Coalition. That's down from seven at the last debate in September. Gabe, who was on stage last night? Well, last night we had Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, who have been increasingly kind of battling it out for second place. You had Vivek Ramaswamy, who was battling it out with Nikki Haley quite a bit. And then you also had Chris Christie and Tim Scott, who were a bit bit of afterthoughts throughout the night. Alex, what did they have to do to qualify to be on the stage? Oh, they had to have a certain number of donors, and then they had to have it hit a certain 
polling threshold. And that's where basically why Mike Pence and Doug Burgum were not on the stage this this last time. Doug Burgum, uh, while because he was able to self-fund, he was able to get the requisite number of donors, but he did not hit that polling threshold, which requires a mix of state polling, early state polling, and national polling. And Mike Pence, essentially, as he was trying to, you know, sometimes you have to pay to get donors online. Mike Pence uh, ran out of money. And as they say, campaigns don't end. They run out of money. Well, this was the third debate and the third time the GOP debates were not attended by former President Trump, who is the front runner in this race, and said he held a rally in nearby Hialeah. His team even had a spin room to counter what was said about him at the debate. Rena, how did his absence once again shape the other candidates' performances? Well, what I'm hearing about last night from my friends in Florida is that that rally in Hialeah was poorly attended. There were many empty seats in a very good venue. This is, again, a an area where Trump did well, you would think that he would enjoy a strong reception. No, he didn't. And I think that's the reality for the former president is that there are people who have soured on him, who may have voted for him again in 2020 and now feel that it is time for someone else who is not rife with problems. You know, over 90 indictments across four different uh, three states in the District of Columbia. This is a situation in which I think we see such a stacked stage because there is an appetite and it's beyond the donor class. And so now what as we go into this fourth debate, which will be in Alabama next month, where to qualify candidates will need six, to receive uh, 6% support in at least two national polls or both 6% in one national poll and 6% in one statewide poll in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, or Nevada. Again, reminding our audience that these are crucial states for the nominating process. And we're some 67 days away from Iowa. So last night, what we heard were these candidates it's going to the extreme because they knew that time is not on their side and they've got to make that pitch. Gabe, I'm curious to hear from you because if we look at polling data, we still see the former president with a significant lead over everyone else on the stage. And it's always interesting to me to look at how the different uh, candidates are competing, who they're choosing to compete against on stage. Did you get the sense that they were duking it out among the five of them or that they were also punching up at Donald Trump? I think it was much more duking out among, amongst the five of them. You know, we saw a little bit more jabs at Donald Trump than we've seen at the previous two debates. Notably, you know, at, at the previous two debates, Donald Trump really didn't come up until quite towards the end. At this one, you know, the very first words out of Lester Holt's mouth were Donald Trump asking the candidates very specifically to say why they would be the better nominee than Trump, who, as you say, is beating them by about 40 points in most national polls. Some of them took that opportunity in that first answer. Ron DeSantis, as we heard, you know, did, you know, kind of give a much kind of stronger message against Trump and how he's changed since 2016. But really after that, he kind of went back to the shadows again. And they, they never really made a clear opportunity. Never, None of them took a clear opportunity to really lay out the question that was asked to them both at the beginning and at the end of the night. Why should it be you and not Donald Trump who is beating you by 40 points? And, and it was much more them kind of squabbling amongst each other, just making each other seem small when they have Trump towering above them. Now, the first hour of the debate was spent on foreign policy. We heard the candidates talk about Israel, Gaza, China, and Taiwan. And we'll talk more about the war a little later. But... Alex, would these normally come up, these foreign policy questions come up at this stage in a presidential election cycle? I mean, they they clearly are reacting to world events. I mean, you have the potential for a broader Middle Eastern war to break out. You see... Uh, 
um, you know, the attacks on U.S. soldiers. And all it takes, right, is, you know, and there have already been some significant injuries, including brain injuries. All it takes is for, um, you know, for a few U.S. servicemen to die. And then, you know, the U.S. is going to feel obligated to retaliate and then things can escalate. And that's why you saw Ron DeSantis actually argue last night that he felt that Joe Biden was making a mistake by deploying increasing, uh, you know, including a nuclear submarine to the area recently because he, as he called them, he's like, they're sitting ducks. Um, and that is why with uh, both Ukraine and Russia, you know, basically at this uh, trench warfare standstill and the, the potential for this to really, you know, broaden into a larger uh, regional war. That's why you saw um, them asking these questions, uh, which is unusual. Did, did it feel to you like the candidates were prepared for this moment? A hundred percent, which I think is also part of the reason. Part of it was you saw the NBC moderators not try to set up the conflicts in the same way that Fox News did the two debates. Sometimes a candidate would mention another candidate, clearly trying to egg them on, and the moderators went to somebody else instead. Um, and I think, um, but I also think the fact that it was foreign policy based just made it for a much more sober evening. Despite a few of the, uh, you know, a few of the clips, uh, you know, with Nikki Haley calling Vivek Ramaswamy. Swami's scum and, and other things. It was definitely a more sober debate, which I think reflects where the country and the world is right now. Gabe, how much are young voters paying attention to foreign policy at this point? I think quite a bit. You know, as you said, I'm a student at Georgetown, and as I'm sure everyone has seen, you know, on college campuses, you know, this is the issue of the moment, and a lot of young voters are, are really thinking very heavily about the Israel-Hamas war. You can see in polling how it's affecting. You know, obviously, most young voters lead overwhelmingly to the left. Most were kind of be natural, kind of naturally in Joe Biden's camp, but you see in the polls the how much it's kind of draining his support among young voters, among Muslim voters. And I think you saw last night, not that many candidates kind of speaking to those worries that young voters have. You saw Ron DeSantis, you know, refer to so-called Islamophobia, when, when we know that that is something that a lot of young voters care about, both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. But, uh, but I, I don't think you saw any of those candidates using the type of messaging that would bring young voters who are kind of dithering about Joe Biden. I don't think you saw any of them bring messaging that would bring them over to their side. I want to talk about uh, the foreign policy arguments made on stage a little later. But in his opening remarks, Vivek Ramaswamy came after the Republican Party pretty hard. We become a party of losers at the end of the day. We have a cancer in the Republican establishment. Let's speak the truth. I mean, since Ronna McDaniel took over as chairwoman of the RNC in 2017, we have lost 2018, 2020, 2022, no red wave that never came. We got trounced last night in 2023. And I think that we have to have accountability in our party. For that matter, Ron, if you want to come on stage tonight, you want to look the GOP voters in the eye and tell them you resign, I will turn over my yield my time to you. Ramaswamy, as we hear, they're highly critical of the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, even calling for her to resign. Rena, what is the mood in the RNC considering some of the losses this week? Yeah, it's incredibly somber because uh, there is a sense that not only does there have to be a recalibration, there has to be a serious uh, rethinking of how these candidates out there with the NR next to their name uh, articulate the policies. And Ronna McDaniels, a chair, has been very open about this. I was just with her this summer where she said, we need to tell these candidates not to be afraid to speak about what they feel on abortion. Don't let your opponent, the Democrat, um, 
message for you. Don't let them set the narrative for you. And so she's been out there very pretty vocal about that, but also vocal about what the RNC's sole role is, essentially. They are a turnout operation. They cannot tell these candidates how to behave. And uh, one thing I think, again, what's sort of in this moment between uh, being lost almost is really a sense that there are younger Americans that could come under the Republican banner, but the old line of messaging of we stand with Israel and we refuse to hear everything else, that isn't working for today's younger, more independently-minded voter. And we all know who that coveted voter is in the swing state. It's an independent voter. And more likely, it's a college-educated woman. So using things like um, the neocons or such and such, that's what Vivek Ramaswamy did last night. He uses this clever line, such as he said, you know, these neocons, these establishment Republicans spent trillions to kill millions and make billions. That kind of stuff doesn't resonate with anyone, I don't think, except for a very, very uh, small minority of the party. That's the MAGA faction, and they are dwindling in size. But one thing I heard last night that made me really nervous uh, from a number of candidates about younger voters, they talked about deporting some of these students on college campuses, not just restricting federal funding, but straight up deporting them. And this wasn't just DeSantis. This was Scott. This was others as well. I find that dangerous. People should be allowed to exercise their First Amendment right. We're going to take a quick pause here, but we'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Now, this debate, of course, was held the same week as many states went to the polls. Kentucky reelected their Democratic governor. Democrats flipped Virginia's state house and Ohio voted to enshrine the right to abortion in its constitution. Ohio was a big win for abortion rights with more than half of voters casting ballots to codify abortion access. And here's one of you weighing in on the impact of that win. Hi, this is Doug calling from Orlando, and all I've got to say is, wahaha, take that, Republicans. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court, they wanted to turn it over to the states. Well, the states apparently have been speaking about abortion rights. And abortion was a talking point on the debate stage last night. Here's former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. So when we're looking at this, there are some states that are going more on the pro-life side. I welcome that. There are some states that are going more on the pro-choice side. I wish that wasn't the case, but the people decided. But when it comes to the federal law, which is what's being debated here, be honest. It's going to take 60 
Senate votes, a majority of the House, and a president to sign it. So no, we haven't had 60 Senate votes in over 100 years. We might have 45 pro-life senators. So no Republican president can ban abortions any more than a Democrat president can ban these state laws. So let's find consensus. Now, we were surprised that abortion didn't come up earlier in this debate. It, it actually came up closer to the end, especially given the big loss for the GOP on that issue this week. Alex, what did we hear from each of the candidates on abortion? Well, you saw essentially Nikki Haley in this, the argument she's been making for a while, which is really about the politics of the issue, not the principle of the issue, which is she's basically saying, yes, I'm pro-life, but we have to be honest with where the country is and where voters are. And so she sort of does this it's not even really clear what her position is. If she if she had sixty votes in the Senate, it's not even clear. Also, you know, would she support carving out the filibuster for it or getting rid of the filibuster for the abortion issue? We don't know. So she's but she's doing a political argument. Uh, Ron DeSantis has really leaned into this, especially as he. Um, has based so much of his campaign on trying to win Iowa, which is very evangelical based. He obviously signed one of, um, you know, given that Florida is still somewhat of a battleground state or at least a purplish state, uh, signed a six-week abortion ban with uh, some narrow exceptions, which, um, you know, he has tried to highlight on the trail, especially in Iowa. Um, but that is a very different from Nikki Haley's position. I think, you know, and, and I think the other candidates were somewhere all in between. But certainly the loss in Ohio, and you're seeing Democrats already try to get similar ballot initiatives in Arizona, in Florida, in Nevada for next year because they feel very confident that they're on the winning side of this issue. Gabe, I want to hear your thoughts because I thought it was interesting that Chris Christie last night really leaned into this idea that we need to leave it up to the states. Yeah, I mean, you see a very clear divide with Republicans on this issue. Tim Scott was really the only person on that stage who came out in favor of a national abortion ban. Very interestingly, Ron DeSantis, as Alex said, signed into law a six-week abortion ban. You would not have known that if you were watching the debate last night. He didn't mention it. He also didn't mention that it was just at the last debate that he promised to sign a 15-week national abortion ban as president. That did not come up last night. I think a sign um, that you see Republicans kind of seeing the, the how voters are feeling on this issue, as we saw in the elections this week, that you saw only Scott come out for a national ban. You saw Christie, Haley, DeSantis, all the varying degrees, but um, playing much more of a kind of moderate tone on this issue. We got this email from Lori who says, for me, the most important issue now is still the right to abortion. Until that is re-enshrined, it will remain so. Irina, what's the likelihood that we're going to see any of these candidates change or pivot in abortion strategy, especially when we think about the difference between a primary message and the message you have to make in a general election. Well, I think we've already seen Nikki Haley tee up a great message for the general election. I think that's what makes her somewhat palatable. In the first debate, the second debate, this third debate, she has given uh, almost what Professor Haley should give, a masterclass in how to win sort of independently minded people over on an issue that, as she put it last night, is dividing Americans in the year 2023. One of my favorite things she said last night on stage is, don't make American people think you're going to push something on them when we don't have the votes. And she's, of course, talking about a federal ban. Chris Christie went to say, this is an issue that should be decided in each state. I trust the American people to do that. So I don't think either of them are going to be pivoting out at any point. But Vivek Ramaswamy was particularly interesting about this because he sort of brought up being a man about all this. And he said, they say men have trouble speaking on this issue. Of course, he went very deep saying, I'm upset about what happened in my native Ohio last night. He talked about abortion happening now there uh, all the way up until the time of birth without consent. He said it happened in Ohio. The result they got on abortion is because Republicans didn't put out 
a sensible alternative. Um, he talked about sexual responsibility for men, and he talked about the issue of abortion being about human rights. He said, we deserve a different generation of leadership on this issue. So I do think he got some heads turning. But in terms of how to win as a Republican in the general election on abortion, look no further than Nikki Haley. She is saying it and saying it well. It's but she's got to get through the primary first, though, Rena. <laughs> and how is that message landing with primary voters? I think primary voters are very confused after what they saw happen in Ohio and Virginia and in Kentucky even. Let's not forget, there were some red counties back then um, that have been red traditionally that now bleed Bashir blue. And it's because they like his leadership in the state. But in Virginia, what we saw was a repudiation of young and him talking about a 15-week ban ahead of time. Whatever weeks you're talking about here, I think there's a sense that American women need bodily autonomy first. Forget the economy for a second. Forget the foreign wars, everything else. When American women feel like something's being taken from them and they don't have the freedom to make the choice themselves, they're going to react some kind of way. And I think it's a younger, suburban, college-educated Republican woman that is going to be, again, the deciding factor for the Republicans on this issue. And, And to that younger voter question, Gabe, How are you hearing from younger voters around this specific issue? I mean, I think there's no question this is the issue more than any other that motivates young voters. And I think you saw in this week's election results the fact that, I mean, from all of the polling shows, young voters, again, lean overwhelmingly left, are very skeptical of the Democratic Party. A lot of them don't feel like they have a home in the Democratic Party. A lot of them feel um, you know, much more independent, are very skeptical of Joe Biden, find him way too old. And yet, when abortion is on the ballot, that is the thing that gets young voters to the polls. We saw that in Kentucky, in Ohio, in Virginia. We saw it in 2022. I think there are real questions whether if when Biden is on the top of the ballot, we'll see it again. But I think all of the evidence and election results so far does point that as skeptical as young voters are, abortion is the thing that gets them to the polls again and again. I want to get to this comment we got from Amy, who disagrees with you, Rena. She writes, Nikki Haley's response to the abortion issue was as wishy-washy as it comes. And I think Amy is maybe thinking about the same thing I am around this issue of getting through a primary election and and how you make the case to prime likely GOP primary voters that you have this stance on abortion and yet you're not really willing to commit to saying, oh, I would sign something if it came across my desk. Yeah, it almost sounds like she's trying to have her cake and eat it too. But look, after this week, anything almost goes. And like I mentioned earlier, there's going to need to be a recalibration. But if I may for a moment, I served two Republican members of the House of Representatives uh, back during the Tea Party era and when they were really coming to prominence. And all I think about also is on my time on the Hill was also during the passage of the Affordable Care Act. At that time, Republicans, we were messaging all day long about every decision needing to be between a doctor and the patient and nobody else getting in between. No bureaucrat needing to get in between that. Now what is this? It's the flip. It's saying that trust us. We know. We'll make the decision. So I think, uh, again, there are a lot of mixed minds. If you're going to be voting Republican, yet you feel like this is an issue where it belongs between you and your doctor, because let's not forget what abortion really is. It's a number of things. There are ectopic pregnancies. There are miscarriages. All of these need termination is not an easy issue for any American woman. And I think that's what's gotten lost in all this. You've got a stage full of men and you've got one woman and she's doing the best she can. Look, it's not a perfect answer, but she's trying to find a way to humanize women and not demonize them like some of her opponents have been doing. And nor has she ever said, "Would does she find a six-week ban uh, that Ron DeSantis signed in the dark of night, might I remind our audience? Does she find that palatable? Not at all. Hmm. Alex, I want to hear your thoughts on this too, especially around the abortion issue. And when we look at what happened in this week's off-year elections for GOP primary voters, likely GOP primary voters, is this an issue that's top of mind for them? 
Well, it is in different ways. I do think there's a significant uh, chunk of the evangelical movement which really views, you know, abortion as, you know, they, they view it as preserving life, millions of unborn of unborn babies' lives, and especially in places like Iowa and a little bit in South Carolina. Um, I think they actually want a, a they want a president who is going to try to do a, some sort of national restriction. Although it is worth pointing out that Mike Pence uh, probably had the most quote unquote pro life position, um, and he went nowhere. Um, I do think on this other end, which is sort of what Rena was saying, and who really Nikki Haley is trying to appeal to, is there are also some Republicans that are worried about electability and like sort of like the the pundit voter, right? And they're trying to find who is the candidate that can you know assemble a coalition knowing what we're, what we now know about voters preference on abortion rights and that's who she's appealing to and also interestingly it's also who Donald Trump is appealing to despite the fact that he has boasted that he was the one that got rid of Roe v Wade given the Supreme Court um appointments he has really danced on this issue and has really also sort of taken this other approach like we'll leave it to the states uh, which is really just a way of pivoting toward the center and trying to make an argument that won't kill him in a general election. Well, another development since the last debate, Trump's fraud trial in New York is underway. Last week, the former president's sons, Eric and Don Jr., testified. This week, it was daughter Ivanka and the former president himself. But a recent CBS poll found that Trump maintains a dominant lead among GOP candidates. In fact, this poll shows that support for Donald Trump hasn't changed at all since summer. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie had this to say about the former president. And I'll say this about Donald Trump. Anybody who's going to be spending the next year and a half of their life focusing on keeping themselves out of jail and courtrooms cannot lead this party or this country. Right, and it needs to be said plainly. And last night after the debate, CNN's Gary Tuckman hosted a panel discussion with 13 Iowa voters. Twelve of them had voted for the former president. But of those 12, only two said they were prepared to caucus for Trump this election cycle. And Tuckman asked them why. Uh, OK, I like the, I like the Donald. He's not perfect. But I think it's possible if he gets felonies that the Democrats are going to take him off the ballot. And so we need DeSantis as our backup plan. What about you? How come you're not ready to vote for Trump? Not the same reason. I'm afraid of his uh, legal status. And I don't think that he would. I think he could win, but I don't think he would win. So you're afraid he might end up in prison? At least off the ballot because of legal issues. We got this email from Jay who asks, why are these people still running for president when Trump is? Who actually thinks they can surpass Trump's popularity? Who's banking on being a VP nominee? Gabe, I'll come to you first. What do you think? I mean, I think, you know, they, they, they all, none of them ha- have a huge chance at, at beating Trump. I think a lot of them know that. And a lot of them know that attacking Trump is not necessarily is perhaps their only way to get above Trump, but it also hurts them with a lot of Republican voters. We heard Chris Christie. He was really the only one that talked about Trump's legal troubles, but he's also the the one who has the highest unfavorability ratings. That's because I guess those voters in that focus group notwithstanding, most Republican voters are fine with Donald Trump being their nominee despite his legal troubles. You know, He uses the line often, they're not coming after me, they're coming after you and I'm standing in the way. And that seems to be a message that's really resonated with a lot of Republican voters. Voters. So, you know, there, there isn't much that Republicans can say, although he is their top competitor. You know, I think there is a reason Chris Christie was the only one that went after his legal troubles. It just does not seem to be a message that's resonating with a huge, huge group of Republican voters. 
uh, you know, across the nation. We got this message from one of you. I don't hear anyone talking about Chris Christie's debate performance, but my vote would be for his common sense, moderate leaning. Coming back to Jay's email, Brina, when you look at the stage last night, do you see people who are perhaps trying to position themselves as a likely running mate? for a potential Trump candidacy? I saw a little bit less of that last night. Um, and, and I think that's just because of time now. And these candidates knew what they had to do last night. They understood the assignment is, again, they need to set the narrative. And so, therefore, you see them bringing out really who they are. Tim Scott did that brilliantly, I thought. Again, talked about his priorities. He is currently a member of the U.S. Senate. Uh, so this is, you know, a good opportunity for him to just continue to talk about um, who he is as a person. And, of course, he has presidential aspirations. But I do think after last night, his as well as Christie's are dead in the water. The trio to beat, of course, is Haley, DeSantis, and Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy, I think, continues to want to be Trump's running mate. DeSantis may even do so despite all the sort of uh, happenings that went on between them in the early stages of this primary. But look, we're still a long ways out. I think anything is possible. But I do think Haley has been very critical of Trump that he would not go for somebody like her. And I think she has made peace with that. Alex, what about for you? What do you think? I think if you're Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, for that matter, that focus group that you just played was just music to their ears. This is exactly what they are hoping on. Now, Trump is the overwhelming favorite. He is likely to be the nominee. But especially in Iowa, he has always been a little bit weaker in Iowa. And if one of and, and essentially the reason why no one is, say, you know, except for Christie's attacking Trump is exactly what Gabe was saying, which is that that's going to ring your negatives up. What all these candidates are doing is that they're going to be the last one standing, is that one of them gets very close to Trump in Iowa or it beats him in Iowa, and the field consolidates very, very quickly, and then you have a one-on-one race, and then maybe enough voters are just like, we want to move on. Uh, it's unlikely to happen, but that is the that is the overwhelming strategy for every single one of these candidates who know they're behind. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious, Rena. Do you have any insight into these candidates' war chests at this moment? Whether or not they can they can stay in a race long enough to have that that kind of impact? I mean, let's not forget the outsized influence of super PACs, right? Yeah. And so DeSantis certainly has one, uh, but truly Haley and Ramaswamy both understood the advantage of coming out early. And so they do have sizable war chests. And then, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy has that personal wealth as well to to aid him. Uh, I think where we stand right now is in a, is in a moment where these candidates uh, are also somewhat skeptical of the poll, skeptical of the polls, excuse me, it's what we all should be after 2016 mm-hmm. to some degree, uh, because there were 80 million Americans who did not vote in 2020. Only 67% of eligible voters cast ballots. What about all these Americans who've been unaccounted for? There was record turnout in 2020. And so I think also these candidates, though they feel that they may be at some point become within striking distance of Trump, uh, they, they are willing to do this test of endurance. And that is what we will continue to see in this next month as we prepare. We see them prepare for a fourth debate. We're discussing last night's GOP debate with Rena Shah, a political commentator and strategist. Also with us, Gabe Fleischer, the founder and editor-in-chief of the Wake Up to Politics newsletter, also a senior at Georgetown University, and Alex Thompson, national political correspondent at Axios. Let's take a quick pause here. Still to come, lots of conversation about foreign policy policy on the stage last night. Did any of it actually sway voters? Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. 
Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from Jan in Omaha, Nebraska. She writes, as pressing as several issues are, none of them is more important than dealing with and surviving climate change. Now, we didn't hear about climate change last night, but we heard a lot about foreign policy. It was expected to dominate this debate, and it did for more than the first hour. It featured in just about every answer in the debate, whether it was part of the question or not. In an early question, moderators asked the candidates what they would tell Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu if they were president. Finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. They're terrorists. They're massacring innocent people. They would wipe every Jew off the globe if they could. He cannot live with that threat right by his country. The Hamas should release every hostage and they should unconditionally surrender. Finish them. And the reason is I worked on this every day when I was at the United Nations. And we have to remember that they have to, one, eliminate Hamas, two, support Israel with whatever they need, whenever they need it, and three, make sure we bring our hostages home. So what I would tell Bibi is that Israel has the right and the responsibility to defend itself. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border. That was Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy that we heard there, though all of the candidates on stage had similarly hawkish positions on this. I want to hear from each of you just your reactions to what we heard from the candidates last night. Gabe, I'll come to you first. Yeah, as you said, I mean, all the candidates had fairly similar lines about Israel, all, you know, talking about the need to allow Israel to defend itself. Notably, Ramaswamy was the only one who didn't commit to the U.S. helping Israel in that goal, just as he's been very skeptical of Ukraine aid, you know, along the same ends. Something you didn't hear was anything, you know, really about the humanitarian situation in Gaza, in Palestine. That's an issue that's very important to a lot of young voters and went unmentioned. You also heard a lot of them use this opportunity to talk about college campuses. Again, it was interesting. Ramaswamy was also kind of a, a, a standout in talking about the need to protect free speech and to allow speech, even if you disagree with it, on college campuses. I, I thought it was an interesting way of kind of almost triangulating in that he was, again, kind of the, the loner in the field, but almost kind of appealing to kind of an opposite demographic and taking what I thought was a principled stand on free speech kind of across the board. So so th- those were some of the interesting parts I thought of that conversation. Rena, what about for you? America sure does love a strong man. And boy, was there so much talk about war last night. Uh, it was almost nauseating for me because, look, it's important, our involvement in what's happening around the world and these conflict zones as well as outside and what's our place. Um, but I, I, I found Vivek Ramaswamy in particular to be quite belligerent in, in many points last night. And um, that aggressiveness, I, I don't know. I, I didn't quite love, love it. But I will say uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, they talked about so – they almost gave this dark picture at the end in their closing statements. And again, related to foreign wars. And Nikki Haley said the world is on fire. Uh, but one line I did like, she said this strong America prevents wars. And uh, and then with Ron DeSantis, of course, he talks about leading our country's revival. And what does that revival mean? What does America do when there's conflict abroad? Do we pour billions of dollars? And then again – as Ramaswamy loved to name check the neoconservatives last night and blamed 
everybody who's a neoconservative for everything that's happening and and how we, again, deport our dollars abroad. There is a strong faction of the Republican Party that loved what they heard last night in foreign policy. And I expect uh, maybe there were some minds changed even last night within the electorate. Alex, what do you think? I thought that answer in particular was so fascinating because I felt like I was watching the Republican Party a la 2004. Essentially was war on terror redux in terms of its rhetoric, the sort of swaggering cowboy and finish them and smoke out the terrorists. And, you know, it it, it was very reminiscent of that post 9-11 era, especially on the Republican Party side and its unflinching. Uh, you know, solidarity with Israel. It also also is striking, given that the you know, this issue clearly divides the left in a very significant way, and the Ukraine Russia war uh, you know divides the right in a very significant way. And this is sort of the inverse, where the right is completely you know Vivek Ramaswamy, sort of notwithstanding and and sort of his like not lack of commitment of sending U.S. troops, but still supporting Israel. I thought it was just very fascinating the the complete. Uh, you know, just the basically the the fact that they were all united, and it was sort of this this combination of evangelical Christians who feel very strongly about Israel, um, in part because of its its stake in the Christian story. Then you have sort of neoconservative foreign policy hawks that see it as a critical ally in the Middle East, and that sort of unity, uh, you know, coming back and being forefront on the stage. Gabe, did you want to get in here? And I think speaking of kind of the parallels with rhetoric after the war on terror, another thing that you heard from the candidates last night, several of them speaking, you basically of another kind of axis of evil. None of them use that terms, but all of them talking about, or most of them at least, talking about China, Russia, and Iran and kind of the parallels between those countries and how working against any one of them, you know, goes against any of them all. You heard that from most of the candidates. Again, Ramaswamy, who, you know, very bizarrely kind of referred to Zelensky as a Nazi at one point. He was kind of the the loner on that. But all the rest of them really hit the points of China, Russia, Iran, and the need to combat. Combating one is combating all three. There was a long discussion about um, naval ships, how many we have, and we got into nuclear submarines. I mean, it, it, it was... It yeah. was fascinating. Go ahead, Nikki Rena. Haley a couple times mentioned the unholy alliance yeah. of Russia, Iran, and China. And then she even talked about her track record at the UN and what she did when it came to North Korea and ballistic missiles and whatnot. So I thought that was quite fascinating because it kind of gave me some hope that this woman understands the broader, bigger picture here. And that's maybe what some of us want hope for right now, because as we see real-time images come back of what American support is doing and you want to question your own government, which I think is a very beautiful and patriotic thing to do, by the way. Um, there there are questions. And so, therefore, again, I saw her leaving the door open to welcome some new support because she talked to that strong track record in foreign policy. Alex, did you come away with the sense that these candidates have a clear foreign policy vision? Because, as we mentioned, China came up, Russia, Iran, um, Israel, there was talk of dropping bombs. I mean, it, it was, <laughs> we, we were watching us kind of do, doing a watch party last night. And at one point I said, wait, what are, what are we talking about? Yeah, I think I would say the, the, to me at least, the candidates that were the most prepared in terms of you could tell they were really in the weeds on some of the details of U.S. foreign policy, how many ships we currently had, and whether or not that is really an important issue. It sort of feels like one of those 
the, those issues from like the the Cold War, which is like who has the more the most nukes, and that like really matters. But you know who has the most ships now becoming very important. But Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis clearly had studied these issues. Ron DeSantis obviously was in the Navy. Nikki Haley had been at the UN. They they clearly were immersed in, in terms of the overall vision beyond the details. It is clear that that a few things are really part of the Republican Party, which is uh, you know anti-China in every single way that they could find a way to paint their opponents as China friendly. They found a way. You talked about Ron DeSantis cutting deal, like Nikki Haley cut some deals with China related companies when she was governor. When you know that was a different era in terms of the relationship with China. But you are seeing um, you, that is a clear position in solidarity with Israel um, and or, or seem to be the two main planks that were highlighted last night. Well, and also the U.S.'s relationship with Taiwan. That was introduced as part 100%. of this debate. Um, I, I want to get to this comment we got from Dan in Missouri, who writes, I am a young man and I plan to go to the polls. I plan to vote as often as possible. I plan to vote my conscience since I am tired of voting anti-Trump. Thank you for the great work, Dan. Thanks for listening. And I don't know exactly how to interpret that. But I want to come to you, Gabe, because when you talk to young voters and they talk about voting their their conscience, how how are you interpreting that or, or, or what's coming through to you about what they mean by that? It's a good question. I mean, I think one thing that is true of young voters, I think this has been true of young voters over a lot of periods of history, but it's true now as well, is that a lot of them view politics through a very moral lens. A lot, a lot of a lot of people view these issues as deeply moral issues, whether that's, you know, climate change, a lot of young voters view as just an existential threat. That's almost like a you know red line for a lot of young voters. If you're not with them on climate change, you know, that's the end of the story. Same with this Israel-Hamas war. I mean, you see a lot of young voters who view this um, you know, in a deeply kind of emotional and moral way. And, that, and that's why you see some of the protests that you see in a lot of college campuses. So, so I think that is kind of what you mean when you, when you hear vote your conscience. And I think also interesting something I hear in that comment, which is true of a lot of young voters, is, you know, I think the narrative for many decades were that young voters, you know, barely voted and that would barely come to the polls. And, and that's been completely changed since the Trump era. As you heard the commenter say, now a lot more young voters are prepared to come to the polls every time they have the opportunity. We really see just a completely different picture in terms of youth turnout before 2016 and now after. I want to make sure to touch on some of the tension we saw last night, especially between Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy. It was hard to miss during the past debates, and it was on display last night. She becomes a military contractor. She joins the board of Boeing and otherwise, and is now a multimillionaire. So I think that that's wrong when Republicans do it or Democrats do it. That's the choice we face. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's going to put this country first, or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? All right, Mr. In which case, we've got two of them on stage tonight. I'd first like to say they're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. Um, we got two of you on stage. The second thing that I will say is I wear heels. They're not for a fashion statement. They're for ammunition. So that's one moment in the debate. There's a second moment when Vivek Ramaswamy references Nikki Haley's daughter, in relationship to TikTok. And Nikki Haley says, essentially, don't talk about my daughter and calls him scum, which was startling on on a debate stage. Rena, what was your reaction to that, Alex? And Gabe, I want to hear from you as well. Well, Ramaswamy lobbed a couple personal insults last night, and actually more than a couple. He even went for NBC News's uh, Kristen Welker and and sort of checked the media and, and was very, I felt very ugly towards her. And, and 
his treatment of Nikki Haley was not bizarre. I mean, they've been having problems for a while, and now they're out in the open. Um, and look, as, as one friend of mine put it, you know, not all of us are looking for sexist boogeyman everywhere. But bringing up children is a line of attack uh, that men in politics uh, are less likely to face than women are. And that's what struck out stuck out to me. I thought it was um, beyond the pale. I, I do think he sunk his campaign last night in his treatment of, a, of her. And um, – because I think a lot of women were very turned off. Men were turned off. Uh, he even said stuff that was towing the line of conspiracy theory. Oh, and the farce about Joe Biden. He's not really acting as president, he said at some point. This is Vivek Ramaswamy. Then he went on about Ukraine saying this isn't some battle of good versus evil. Don't fall for it. So it, it wasn't surprising because, again, he called Nikki Haley one of the sharpest of war hawks. And so it's, it's just uh, it's an awful situation. But I do think it highlights. Uh, what women in politics have endured for so long. Alex, I mean, what are, what's your thinking around whether that kind of language, especially considering the last couple of elections we've been through, whether that kind of messaging really bothers voters at all? That's a really interesting question. I think it always depends on the context. In this case, it, it was her reacting uh, against an attack on her daughter. And I think... And you know, I, I don't, I, to be clear, I don't oh, mean sorry. Nikki Haley's language. I mean Vivek Ramaswamy's, those personal attacks. Oh, Whether that's, that's going to dissuade certain voters. Well, the, uh, we should note that the 2016 Republican nominee uh, called uh, his, his colleague's wife ugly. Um, suggested uh, that you know talk, talked about uh, you know the 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 size of their genitalia and was was probably w- attacked at candidates in the most personal way and petty way possible and then he won the nomination fairly like you know fairly easily so how much voters turn off I think also depends a little bit on the person's personality now. Donald Trump was able to do that in part because he had the, you know, reality star sort of charisma where people like were sort of in on the joke and they thought it was entertaining and funny. But the thing that's really been really interesting about Vivek Ramaswamy, though, is he did this very similarly in the first debate. And it, w- it was really striking to me that uh, clearly they got some polling back and you're seeing it besides Chris Christie, the candidates whose negatives have gone up the most in the last three months, Vivek Ramaswamy. Hmm. Um, and so clearly there is something about his sort of gifts of gab and the way he goes about it that actually turns voters off. You saw in the second debate, he really ramped it down. I remember afterward, all of his colleagues were saying, you know, he's a very humble guy. He's, that's what they've been telling reporters now pretty recently. And clearly, he, he got tired of acting humble and just went back. Um, and I, I sort of agree with, with Rena is that, um, that it appears that voters are a little turned off by it. So in just a sentence or two, really a sentence or two, was there a clear winner for each of you, or who do you think maybe positioned themselves a little better? Gabe, I'll come to you first. I, I think Nikki Haley was the winner last night. I think she had very prepared lines against all the candidates and got a lot of effective attacks in. Rena? I would say Ron DeSantis pulled himself up a little bit more, quite a bit. I was I was impressed by that. But to me, Nikki Haley was the clear winner, despite Vivek Ramaswamy's dings at her issue and how she takes care of family. Alex, you get the last word. Donald Trump, because there's still a medal for second place. All right. Big thanks to our guests. Alex Thompson is a national political correspondent at Axios. Rena Shaw is a political commentator and strategist. And Gabe Fleischer is the founder and editor-in-chief of the Wake Up to Politics newsletter. He's also a Georgetown University senior. Thanks to you all.
Today's producer was Maya Garg. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the platform for database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive at oracle.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.